This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read more books like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through the Google form included in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access digital early reads and pre-pub author chats as well as my new Traveling Galley program. For May, my early read selection is Banyan Moon by Tao Tai. For June, The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman. And for July, The Book of Silver Linings by Nan Fisher. The link to join is in my show notes. Today, Laura Hankin returns to talk with me about The Daydreams. Laura is the author of Happy and You Know It, A Special Place for Women, and the upcoming The Daydreams. She's written for outlets like McSweeney's and HuffPost, while her musical comedy has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and more. She lives in Washington, D.C., where she once fell off a treadmill twice in one day. I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you enjoy this podcast, I have another podcast that you will enjoy as well. A Bookish Home takes you behind the book with best-selling authors. Add to your TBR list while getting the inside scoop on the winding road to publication. Laura Zaro kopinski is a librarian, mom, writer, and lifelong bookworm who is striving to create a culture of reading wherever she goes. She interviews a different author each week, and her episodes drop on Wednesdays. This spring, her podcast features Eleanor Shearer, author of River Sing Me Home, Maggie Smith, author of the memoir You Could Make This Place Beautiful, and Julia Kelly, author of The Lost Girl, as well as several other fabulous authors. Her show can be found on all major platforms, and I hope you will tune in. And now for my read-alike request segment. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us. While lots of websites use algorithms to try and recommend similar books, I rarely find that these recommendations make sense because they do not focus on what it is I liked about the particular book. This is what I want to tap into, the aspects of the book that appeal to the requester and to focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Sally, and she's selected Beyond That the Sea by Laura Spence-Ash a beautiful debut that came out in March. And beyond that, the sea, Spence Ash tells the story of Beatrix, who at age 11 is sent by her parents, Millie and Reginald, from London to live in America during the peak of World War II. She lives with the Gregory family, with the parents and their sons, William and Gerald. They forge their way to becoming a family of sorts, spending summers in Maine and with Bee finding herself falling for William. 
Then the war ends, and B moves back to London, where she can never quite get settled again, because going forward, she feels caught between two worlds. Sally enjoyed the book because she thought it was beautifully written, and she liked the focus on the concept of home, how we define it, and what happens when people are uprooted when they are young and become comfortable in a new environment only to be returned to their original home or some semblance of it. A number of recent books have dealt with this theme, and it is such a thought-provoking topic, so I was thrilled when I saw Sally's request. My first recommendation is Foster by Claire Keegan. In this Irish novella, a young girl spends a summer with her childless aunt and uncle and gains an understanding of what a caring household looks like compared to her regular existence with parents who don't provide that kind of stability and aren't cut out to parent. A movie based on Foster is out now called The Quiet Girl, and it has been getting rave reviews. I think this is a great read-alike for Beyond That the Sea, because both B and the nameless girl in Foster come to love the places they are sent to, and then have to return home to their regular lives. Beyond That the Sea deals with what happens to B afterwards, and in Foster, you're left to imagine what will happen. My next recommendation is Once We Were Home by Jennifer Rosner. This book focuses on the Jewish children during World War II who were sent to live with Christian families for their safety, and then the ways in which they were returned and how that played out after the war. She also incorporates the story of Jewish children who were kidnapped in Poland and raised by German families, as well as those that were taken in by the Catholic Church. With the added layer of religion, this book addresses the impact of uprooting these children, as well as what role family heritage and culture play in a person's life. This is another great example of a book focusing on the concept of home and how what happens in children's formative years will stay with them forever. The last recommendation for a read-alike for Beyond That the Sea is an older book that remains close to my heart, News of the World by Paulette Giles. As I read Beyond That the Sea, I kept thinking about this book and the similarities in theme. In the aftermath of the Civil War, an aging, itinerant newsreader agrees to transport a young captive of the Kiowa back to her family. One focus of the book is the difficulty Joanna experiences trying to assimilate back into her native-born culture, an issue many children captured by various Native American tribes experienced upon their return to their families or towns. Giles weaves this thread throughout the story and even includes an author's note at the end with additional information on the topic. While what Joanna and B each undergo is drastically different, they both develop attachments to their new families and struggle to find their way when they are returned. That makes News of the World a great read-alike for Beyond That the Sea. Two more titles that would also be good read-alikes for Beyond That the Sea are Patty Callahan Henry's new book, The Secret Book of Flora Lee, and Julia Kelly's The Lost English Girl. They touch on similar themes. Thanks, Sally, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Laura Hankin. Welcome, Laura. How are you today? I am doing well. I'm so excited to be here talking with you. I'm so glad you're back. And I absolutely loved The Daydreams. I just cannot wait to talk about it. It will definitely be one of my top reads of the year. <laughs> oh, you're making me feel great already. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad. I'm telling you it'll be on my summer reading list. It's one of my May Buzz Reads picks. I'm going to be telling everyone I know that they need to read this book. Thank you. <laughs> so let's start out with you giving me a quick synopsis of The Daydreams for those that won't have read it yet. Yes, absolutely. So The Daydreams is about the stars of an early 2000s TV show who, at the height of their fame, just combust in the most scandalous way on live TV. And now it's 13 years later, they've all gone in very different directions, but they are forced to come back together again for a reunion special that has the potential to either redeem them or destroy them all completely. 
So how in the world did you come up with the idea for this one? (laughs) Well, I will say like so many other people, I was getting very into the early 2000s nostalgia. (laughs) You know, I was really rewatching a lot of the movies and listening to a lot of the songs and just thinking so much about the pop culture of the time. But I was noticing, like I think a lot of us were starting to notice that so many of the really bright, shining starlets of the time had gone on to have incredible difficulty given, you know, the the attention that we'd focused on them and how much we'd torn them apart. So I was really interested in exploring that. I think this was this was sort of around the time that Free Britney was picking up traction and a lot of people were asking, like, why has Justin Timberlake's career gone so well when things have been so tough for Britney Spears? So that was a major factor. And then also, I just noticed that there were so many reunions and reboots happening. And they were so fascinating to me because, you know, inevitably, some of the people who had been on the show or who had been in the band had gone on to have incredible solo careers and others had not done so well. And I thought that just seemed like such a fun and messy environment to throw a bunch of characters into and deal with all the jealousy and all the other emotions that that would bring up. Is the book based on any particular show or group, or did you take inspiration for any particular show or group? <laughs> I I did a lot of research and looked at a lot of different shows and groups, but I didn't want it to feel like it was just mapping a real life one, you know, onto a fictional one. Uh, I will say that, for example, something like High School Musical, I think represents the tone of what the TV show that they're all making is. And, you know, I but I really looked at everyone from... Brittany to Jessica Simpson to Janet Jackson to Ryan Gosling, who started out on, you know, the Mickey Mouse Club before going on to have a very successful, respected acting career. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a whole bunch of things. But I really wanted it to feel like the daydreams and the four stars of it could have existed in the world of our our world of our early 2000s alongside all the other, you know, Lindsay Lohan, et cetera. Well, you accomplished that because I did not feel like as I was reading your book that I was like, oh, this is just like this particular show or this particular group. I felt it was innovative and new, but as you said, could have existed in our world, much like Daisy Jones, which reminds me when I was looking on Goodreads ahead of our interview, I saw the greatest quote in a review and it said, Daisy Jones walked so the daydreams could run. And I thought, oh my gosh, I just love that. That needs to be your tagline. I truly want to get that tattooed on the inside of my eyelids. It's so nice. I just loved it. And with all the hubbub about Daisy Jones now with the television show and everything, I'm like, oh, it's even better because I had to write a roundup about things like Daisy Jones and I included the daydreams and I'm sure other people have been doing the same because they're similar in that they're both about music, but they're very different in their content. Oh, well, first of all, I'm so glad to be compared to it and included in that roundup because I I love Daisy Jones so much, the book, and I've really been enjoying the TV show as well. Yeah, and I think there were certain aspects of Daisy Jones that I wanted to engage with, you know, this sense of like, what went wrong when these bright shining stars were on the peak of so much success? But I, I wanted to be able to like, look at the present day more than Daisy Jones does. You know, Daisy Jones is so much a retrospective and I wanted aspects of the past, but while still being like, 
okay, but how does the, you know, trauma of this and the excitement of this affect them 13 years down the line? And if they're forced back together again, like, what are all of their agendas? Yes, absolutely. A reunion show does bring to the front a lot of different things. And as you mentioned, in recent times, there have been some really big reunions. And it's interesting to see who participates and who doesn't and kind of see some of the behind the scenes, or at least what the news represents as the behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, for example, I think the iCarly reboot is a very salient example of this, right? Jeanette McCurdy, who was one of the major supporting players, did not come back for the reboot. And I think at first, there was some sort of not very sympathetic gossip about like, ooh, why didn't she come? Trouble behind the scenes, like drama, drama between the girls, cat fights, etc. And then she wrote her incredible memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died, and talked about it and really, I think in like a brutal and honest way, talked about how hard it, how she never wanted to be a star. And she was sort of forced into child acting and not coming back for the show was absolutely the healthiest decision for her. And I, I'm glad that, you know, the world has taken a step back and been like, oh, yes, he says, of course, this reboot is great for other people, but it would not have been right for her. Absolutely. And Fuller House. I mean, there's just a variety of them. Mm -hmm. Well, you talked a little bit about the research. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that? You delved into some of these characters, some of these humans, some of the shows. What was that like? Yeah. On the one hand, it was super fun because I basically got to listen to a lot of early 2000s pop music. And whenever anybody looked at me a little sideways, be like, this is very important and serious research that I'm doing. I'm getting into the mood. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It, was all, it also felt very important to rewatch a lot of movies and old TV shows that had always given me so much comfort. And then, you know, I did things like reading Jessica Simpson's memoir, which I actually thought was so great. Open book, if anybody's looking for a celebrity memoir. I did it on audiobook and she narrates and it's wonderful. And it's just really illuminating about, you know, what was really going on back in the early 2000s when we were all very quick to judge her as an airhead or make fun of her body or all these sorts of things. It's so nice to be able to hear her side of the story. And then, you know, I, I read a lot of interviews or watched a lot of interviews from the time looked at the old blogs and the paparazzi footage and stuff like that. And some of it was really soul crushing. It's kind of unbelievable the way that we talked about these young women back then and thought it was okay. All the fat shaming, the denigrations of people who were going through mental health struggles. It, it's really rough. It is. And you actually led me right into my next question. There's a lot to unpack in the book, the way the media and execs treat teen stars really then, but even now, the pressures of being in the spotlight so young, which I think have just gotten worse with social media getting larger and larger in our lives. What happens when a teen star flames out, racism? I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that you take on in a very compelling way in this book. Thank you. I wanted people to be able to read this book on two levels. You know, I wanted you to be able to take it to the beach and devour it and have a lot of fun uh, with all the juicy drama of it. But then I also wanted readers to be able to think about a lot of these different issues that have always been underlying the like really fun pop culture that we consume. Yeah. And the social media aspect of it all is so interesting because I think recently 
we've liked to pat ourselves on the back a bit for how we're all so much more enlightened and acknowledge that we were wrong about how we treated these these starlets. And we've liked to say like, oh, we're so much better now. We would never be so unsympathetic and unfeeling. But I think social media has really unlocked a whole new way for us to judge people 24-7. And on the one hand, maybe it's good for for famous people to be able to control things a little bit more. Like if you have your social media account, at least you can put out the stuff that you want to put out as opposed to in the early 2000s. It was like the paparazzi chasing you down. You didn't have as much control over your narrative. But yeah, on the other hand, I mean, you can see with people like Selena Gomez and Hailey Bieber and that whole controversy, it can really, really be harmful (laughs) to these these young celebrities. Absolutely. And that's a very valid point about the upside to social media for them being they can try to control the narrative, put out their own press or their own version of what's happening. But also it just elevates so many other voices, so many haters that before didn't really have a platform. I guess you could comment in the notes to a story online or something. But just to be able to go in and say these horrible, hateful things on Twitter or Facebook or wherever it is, just seems sometimes there's no end to it. Yeah. And any random person now can make a TikTok (laughs) that unexpectedly goes viral and starts off a whole like trend on the app, people feeling like they need to comment on something. Yes, for sure. But I think you're exactly right that you have this really fun read. I mean, it was so compelling, such a page turner. I just was working my way through it so fast. But There were all these issues that I'm still thinking about. And I read it months and months ago. I read it in like November. You and I communicated then. And I just thought it was fantastic. But I still think about it. And I really think about it when I see a teen star in the news. And I'm like, okay, I got to take what they're saying with a grain of salt, but also just feel a little more compassion for them than I might have before, where I might not just even thought about it before. Yeah. I mean, I think there's such an impulse to be like, oh, you're famous. So you signed up for this. and. You can't get too upset about anything that happens to you. But that's not true. (laughs) I I think just because you have the good aspects of fame doesn't mean that it's a total dream come true. And I think so many of us, you know, quote unquote, normal people have no idea how we would feel if like our every move was being tracked and commented upon. And it's got to be so much more destabilizing than we realize. You can't even leave the house without somebody following you and then they're commenting on you if you're in sweatpants or shorts or some outfit they don't think is appropriate, whatever it is. Yes, I can't even imagine. I'm such a private person that I would be like, everybody needs to back the heck off, but it would be really difficult. Oh my God, yes. And the whole world having an opinion on your romantic relationship, you know, anytime you were seen with somebody who you could potentially be linked to just seems exhausting. Exactly. I have not had that many celebrity run-ins in my life, but I remember running into a a late night talk show host in New York one time. He was walking down the street and we uh, we sort of linked eyes. And I swear we had like this whole (laughs) moment where in his face, I could read him just being like, you know who I am. Please don't make a scene. And I was like, no, I'm going to be one of the cool ones that just walked on by. (laughs) Give him a head nod. Yeah, yeah. Well, how did you decide that Kat would tell the story? Ooh, great question. Uh, So Kat, who in the book, she is cast as the mean girl on the TV show and ever 
since it imploded, she's like run away from Hollywood. She's a lawyer in DC. She's like really trying to be anonymous until she is dragged back for a variety of reasons. I wanted her to be the main narrator because I felt like in some ways she could be the best audience surrogate. You know, I think we're also obsessed with like the big shining stars and the leads. We don't know what it's like to be them, but we know what it's like to love them or hate them. I just have all sorts of complicated feelings about them. And I felt like Kat, as somebody who is famous, but who is not the one that the attention was focused on all the time, and who subsequently had a lot of jealousy and issues because of that, was able to bring us into the story in the best way. And I also felt like so much of the book is it's kind of tackling this mystery of like, what is it to be the Britney Spears, the Lindsay Lohan, you know, the, the girl who becomes the cautionary tale. And if we were just inside her head the whole time, we would lose a lot of the mystery and the tension. And so much of it needed to come from Kat, like wanting to know and wanting to try to make things right for her. That makes sense. And there are some things that I will definitely not spoil that work really well with Kat being the one telling the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's all I can say. I also loved that you interspersed news articles and the journal and various things like that within the story. And I liked the way they were presented on the page. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was super fun to be able to play around with different voices. You know, there's everything from a Vanity Fair article about the main girl in the show named Summer to Summer's journal entries to a sample of a fan fiction story about the two romantic leads in the show. And I had a great time writing all of those. But I also felt like, you know, I could talk all day long about from Kat's perspective about what it was like to be on the show and the frenzy around it. But you would get so much more getting to read some of the coverage of it firsthand, too. Some of those articles make your point about how these women were treated and what was happening at the time. 100%. Yeah, I really, with the Vanity Fair one, it's this male writer. And there were plenty of articles that I read from the time that inspired it. I really wanted to capture how, you know, he's very pretentious and feels very above the show. But but he's also very fascinated by this like young woman. And it's it's very turns into a very unintentionally pervy article. (laughs) Yeah, been a little disturbing to write from that point of view. Yes, I would think so. Did you always decide to have those different things interspersed within the story or did that come as you were working on it? That was there from the beginning. You know, developing this book, I think I sent the first three chapters to my agent and then my editor and got a deal from that because I have worked with this editor before. And I believe that the Vanity Fair article or maybe the fan fiction, at least one of them, Um, was in like that very first sample. So yeah, it turns out it was pretty integral the whole time. I would think so, because especially Summer's Journal, but even some of the articles, I think you would be missing something if you didn't have them. Yeah, thank you. What was the highlight of writing the book? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I actually think that the revision process was the most fun. I knew from the beginning that this idea was had so much potential. And then I think the first draft of it was good, but not great. And there was a moment when I was writing the second draft where something just really clicked into place. I'd been trying to figure out this really important, pivotal scene. It was like a little bit boring. 
<laughs> in the first draft. And I had like this long talk with my husband. We we're just talking it out and suddenly realized where I could reset it and how that would open up all of these new possibilities. And I remember just like going on this long walk afterwards and my whole body felt like it was buzzing because I was like, oh, all right, we got this now. Well, when I'm reading a book like this that I just love from the beginning and I'm so invested in it, there's always this overhanging stress of what is the ending going to be like. And obviously this is spoiler free, so we're not going to talk about how it ends, but I just want to talk about the ending generally. So I kept thinking, I really hope the ending is going to be good and doesn't ruin this whole book for me. And I loved the ending so very much. Thank you. I'm so glad because landing an ending can be tricky. (laughs) And after a lot of work on it, I I think slash hope it is very satisfying. And I will say, you know, for all that I've been talking about how this book is very fun, I've had a few readers tell me that they have cried at the ending because they've been moved by it. And that is like that and the Daisy Jones uh, Watch to the Daydreams Could Run. I feel like those are the pieces of praise that I'm going to hold on to throughout this whole process. (laughs) I think it's one of those things that as I was reading, I became so invested in the characters and what had happened to them, where they were now. And I just was like, I hope this ends in a way that I feel good about. And so that's all I'm going to say, but I just was really happy with your ending. Thank you. So now we're going to talk about something that I am super, super excited to talk about, and that is your stunning cover. It is my favorite cover of 2023. It's the whole reason before I even realized your name was on the book, I saw the cover and I was like, I have to read that book. And then I'm like, oh, great. It's by Laura Hankin. But I didn't even know what it was about. The cover is phenomenal. Do you just love it? I am obsessed with it. Yes. (laughs) The cover design process can take a little while sometimes. And we had seen a few other options that had very good elements to it. But then this one landed in my inbox and my agent called me up, but you know, her team and we were all just like, yes, yes, it's perfect. Go. (laughs) Yes. Do you know if they staged it? I'm actually not sure. I think (laughs) my guess is that it's like stock photo photoshopped as opposed to they hired models, but I can, I can try to find out. Oh, it doesn't really matter. I didn't even know that people hired models for covers until maybe like six months ago when somebody was talking about it for their cover. And I was like, oh, I knew stock photos were used a lot, but I didn't realize that the other could be done. So I just wondered because it is so perfectly done. And I've seen several people say that they think it looks like Jeanette McCurdy, which I thought was kind of interesting. I know it's not. And I didn't really think it actually looked that much like her. But it's interesting because after we talked about her book, her book is, you know, one that makes you think about your book. I thought, huh, that's really interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't heard that before. To me, she sort of looks like Emma Stone. (laughs) With like long hair. I'm not even sure who I think she looks like other than the perfect fit for your book. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm equally obsessed with it. Every time I see it again, I'm like, oh, I just love this book. And that is such a great cover. Yeah. You know, cover designers are really talented people. (laughs) They are, especially at Berkeley. Yeah. So what about picking character names? I'm always interested in how authors pick names. But I think with a story like this, there is really a particular issue with the names that you're going to pick. Did it take a while to land on some of them? Some of them, yeah, because I think you want them to sound like they could be celebrities, you know? (laughs) Right. And celebrity names often have this kind of ineffable quality, but you also don't want them to sound too heightened. Yeah, so I think my naming process is not particularly a science. I kind of just walk around and think about names until I'm like, 
yeah, that seems right. And then if at some point during the course of writing the book, it seems wrong, I'll change it. But this one, the names were pretty locked in from the beginning. I don't think I changed anybody's names. But yeah, especially I think with this book, as I said, you want it to sound like it could be a celebrity, but you don't want it to sound like a pre-existing celebrity. I would think it would be really tricky to have landed on the right names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was. Especially for some, you know, the main girl, Summer Wright. Like the name needs to carry a lot of weight. <laughs> it does. And Noah's name as well. Yeah, yeah. Noah Gideon. Like these are the names that are going to be on posters and in magazines. So. And household names, like everybody knows them. Exactly. Exactly. They should roll off the tongue to a certain extent. Exactly. And sound like somebody famous. Mm hmm. <laughs> Is there a particular scene in the book that really stands out to you, one that you enjoyed drafting? I will say that, like, <laughs> there's a scene very early on. Uh, I don't think it's a, a spoiler, because it's probably chapter three or four, where Summer comes back to convince Kat to do the reunion, and they, like, go and do some karaoke together with strangers. And that scene was just so fun to write and came so early. I think that was the moment where I was for the first time really like, okay, I get what this book is. What about coming up with the name of the band, The Daydreams, and then using that as the title? What was that process like? Yeah. So The Daydreams is the name of the TV show. It's also the name of like the band that these characters form in their high school. You know, sort of like Hannah Montana uh, is the name of the TV show. It's also the name of the character who's a pop star or Daisy Jones and the Six. Big Time Rush. That was the other one. Big Time Rush is the other one I was thinking about because my kids loved Big Time Rush. So it's another one like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to play into that grand tradition. And the daydreams, what I liked about that is that it feels sort of like innocent. You know, this TV show is supposed to be quite innocent and it's aimed at preteens and teens and it I say very early on, you know, it's like the, these teenagers in the TV show are living in a world where, you know, it seems like alcohol doesn't exist and babies are delivered by a stork. So I wanted it to have that like innocent, wholesome ring to it, but that could also be a little bit like twisted or perverted by the wrong people, you know, um, like, oh, these teens are, are daydreaming. But also the Vanity Fair article ends up going with the headline, like the girl of your daydreams. Yeah. So innocent, but with the possibility of making it slightly more sinister. I love that, actually. I hadn't really thought through all of that, but that is great. Sort of a double-edged sword. And then also on the daydreams, how did you decide on it being the title of the book? <laughs> um, so I was just calling it that as I was drafting, because I always just have like a, t a temporary title in place that usually is just incredibly obvious. And at a certain point, my team was like, okay, we should think about some other titles. And we spent so long thinking about other titles that like maybe were more obviously celeb focused, you know, I think at one point I pitched, they're just like us, as in that <laughs> Us Weekly <laughs> feature. But ultimately, we all felt like we didn't, we didn't like anything as much as we liked the daydreams. And it was simple. Um, but we felt that paired with a good cover, it could really get the point across. And luckily, as discussed, we came up with a great cover. 
And I think because the band is called The Daydreams and the TV show is called The Daydreams, it's really great to also then have the book called that because it just kind of carries that throughout. That is clearly what you're writing about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, I recently devoured Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers by Jesse Q. Sutanto. Have you read this one? I love that book. It's one of my favorite reads of this year so far with yours. Yes, it is so entertaining, so funny. Yeah, it's just an absolute delight. You know, the the plot is an older woman finds a dead body in her tea shop and decides that she's going to solve the mystery of you know this murder. So it's it's a cozy mystery, but it like it has more depth to it than I was expecting too. I think the the characters are complex, but it's also just so funny. I was literally like reading bits of it out loud <laughs> to my husband and then laughing out loud, which I, I don't do very often. I'm more of an inward chuckler, you know? <laughs> <laughs> she's just the funniest character. And I love that she names her tea shop Vera Wang because she's like, I want the name recognition. And there's just so many different hilarious things. That's a very entertaining story. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw this, but they just announced that it's going to be made into, I think, a TV show by Oprah and Mindy Kaling, which seems perfect. I agree completely. I was like, okay, who would you want to take your book and develop it? I'm like, hmm, Oprah and Mindy Kaling. Yes, no, that will be so well done. I just saw that a couple days ago. It's very exciting. And I was thinking, I think your book would be so perfect to be developed. Oh, thank you. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Exactly. I'll be sending very good vibes. Thanks. Funnily enough, in a similar vein of like older woman searching for a purpose in her life. I also read right around the same time, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz, which is about a woman who is out of a job. And so she has to go through this, like these 12 sort of sessions to talk with a a job counselor about like what might be the next step for her. It's a government program. And it's written almost entirely as her just talking to her interviewer. And it's so good. The character just leaps off the page. Um, And it's funny, but also heartbreaking. And I really recommend it. Okay. That is so funny that you mentioned that book because it was one of my favorite books of last year. But my friend Kelly Hooker, who's Kelly Hook Reads Books, I don't know if you know her on Instagram. She and I were talking and she was saying how much Vera reminded her of Cara Romero. And I was like, I'm not sure I would have ever connected it up, but they really do remind me of each other because they're very strong women. They have a way of doing things and they've had, you know, hard things happen to them. So I thought that's a great analogy, but that book is amazing. And it's another one that I've heard is a phenomenal audiobook. I read it, but I've heard the audiobook's amazing. Yeah, I almost I almost regret that I did not do the audiobook. And just the format. I always really like clever formats and the way that that one is done where she just comes in and starts sitting down, treats the job counselor like her therapist and just starts telling her everything. And and then all the forms that are in it. You know, much like yours where there's different things that kind of interrupt the regular storyline. I think that that's so great. And I love seeing it in more and more books. Yeah, I'm such a sucker for that that kind of format. And I feel like in some ways we have um, Taylor Jenkins Reid to thank for it. I don't know if it's entirely her, but I think with Daisy Jones doing it as an oral history, that like really kicked off some other people experimenting a little bit more it, because it was such a popular mainstream book. I hadn't really thought about that, but I love that book, obviously, as we've been talking about. And that's one you said the audiobook is so good before we were recording. 
I keep hearing that, so I need to also listen to that one. But that's interesting. That's that's what I liked so much about Daisy Jones was the format. So maybe that is right that she kind of kicked that off. Yeah, I mean, I I know nothing. I kind of pulled that out of my butt. So like, <laughs> I hope I'm not denying credit to anybody else who may have kicked this off as well. <laughs> I'm going to be quoting you. And Laura Hankin says that Taylor Jenkins Reid is the one who kicked that off. After years of exhaustive research, Laura Hankin would bet her life on this. <laughs> I'll put that with the Daisy Jones walked so the daydreams could run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Laura, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I obviously loved the daydreams and I'm so happy we got to talk about it. Oh, it was such a pleasure getting to chat with you again. Thank you for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. in Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.